When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. My catchphrase this entire year has been Semper Gumby, always flexible. I started this pandemic by saying to everybody, everything is fluid. The information we have today is different than what we knew yesterday is different than what we know tomorrow. Perfection is the enemy of the good. And as a college, we're gonna be Semper Gumby. We're gonna be always flexible. You know, as presidents, we try to do the right thing. Sometimes we're right, sometimes we're wrong. And I think the best thing we can do is make the best decision at the time, be willing to be Semper Gumby, and be willing to say, yeah, I made a mistake, or hey, I thought this was a good thing to do, it didn't work out, let's try something new. You know, because in the end, the only thing that matters are the students. Are they being served? You are listening to Change Lab, conversations on transformation and creativity. I'm Lauren Buckman, president of Art Center College of Design. Erica Andrijanis isn't just an advocate for the pivotal role community colleges play in providing equal access to the American dream. She is also an alum of Cal State Northridge and direct beneficiary of California's long-standing commitment to affordable higher education for all. As such, she has an intrinsic understanding of the system's value to society. And in her current role as the superintendent and president of Pasadena City College, which is consistently ranked among the best in the state, she is fiercely determined to make sure the system remains a vital engine driving social mobility for generations to come. Her guiding principle in leading a large public institution is to ensure that PCC levels the playing field for students from all walks of life. In her view, Pasadena City College and others like it are providing singular opportunities to transcend barriers financial, cultural, and social that might be standing between them and a college degree. Erica's combination of passion, tenacity, and acuity has fueled her remarkable self-made success story. She cleared a set of financial obstacles only to go on and earn a PhD in history, culminating in a fascinating dissertation on the ways in which mid-century cookbooks prescribe gender roles to a limited set of separate but unequal stereotypes. Though the segue to college leader isn't an obvious one, the through line connecting those dots is Erica's unmistakable commitment to creating a more egalitarian world and her pragmatic approach to getting there. Please enjoy my conversation with Erica Andrijanis. Famously, songwriters talk about interesting ways into creative breakthrough is to start with an unusual chord that comes from out of the blue and from the side, you know, and mm -hmm. Joni Mitchell and David Crosby were famous for saying that. So I'm going to start the interview this way, Okay. which for us will seem like uh, coming from the side for you probably right in your sweet spot. And that's to talk about cooking and cookbooks. And I mean, you know, as dissertation topics go, looking at... Um, <laughs> <laughs> middle-class families and deconstructing that as a way to understand culture in the post-war world, I guess, from mm -hmm. about 45 to 60 is which you did it. Yeah. Tell us about your dissertation. Tell us about what you discovered through your study and deconstruction of cookbooks. Happy to. So uh, what I discovered was that cookbooks in the post-war years were basically prescriptive literature for men and women in the post-war years, uh, especially with the high rate of marriage and with the boom in suburbia and people moving around. Uh, cookbooks published by major publishing houses. So that's what I looked at. There were 863 cookbooks published by major 
uh, publishing houses at that time. So I did a random study of 150 of them. And basically what I found was that they were prescriptive literature for women and for men. Mm. So think about Betty Crocker. This is when the Betty Crocker cookbook came out. And there were all kinds of things that told you how to be a successful mother, how to be a successful woman and wife. For example, when you get up in the morning, make sure that you've showered, you have on makeup and you have on perfume. Because if you look ready, if you're all put together, your children and your husband will eat breakfast and they will digest their food better and they'll have a better day. Um, if you really want to prepare your family to be successful, post the breakfast menu the night before. So wow. they go to sleep thinking about what a great day they're going to have, what they're going to get to eat. So there were all kinds of things like that. But at the same time, and this was what surprised me about my research, was that there were also cookbooks published by and for men in that period. And interestingly enough, you know, the cookbooks published by and for women were all about, this is your role, how do you do a great job? The cookbooks published by and for men were about women are the worst cooks ever and men need to save people from women's cooking. They never suggested that men take over the job of cooking. There was a cookbook author who said, you know, really what a man should do is take over the cooking and have his wife as a pet. But he was kidding, of course. But this was also the time of James Beard. Prior to the post-war years, if you were a chef, you were very effeminate, you were artistic, you were all of these things. But James Beard comes along, he's big, he's bold, he gets Americans to eat things like garlic and really strong spices. And so what happens is James Beard and other male cookbook authors introduce the idea of masculinity into cooking. Add to that the uh, craze of the barbecues and suburban homes where the front yard was smaller, the backyard was larger, and barbecues, which a lot of those plans for barbecues had been around in the 1930s, but because of the depression and all of that, they really hadn't taken hold. But in the 1950s, barbecue, men are in control, men are specifically in control of meat. And there were actually male cookbooks that talked about how only men should go to the butcher. Because if a woman goes to the butcher, then a butcher is going to, you know, totally put his thumb on the scale, make sure they pay too much for meat. But a man, man's going to go to the butcher, mano y mano. They'll talk about it. He'll get a good price. And then he will go home and he will be the master of the barbecue. What incredibly interesting work. And what about the male in the professional world? Because males were associated with, you know, restaurant chefs, right? Mm -hmm. Right. And kind of taking power in the kind of business world, right? It wasn't so much women chefs, or was it in restaurants? No, there actually weren't really big women chefs at the time. It was really a role that was reserved for males. And it was about showboating. It was about, and restaurant culture in the 1950s was very much about you're going out. Yes, you're going to eat good food, but you're also going to have this amazing experience. So that was on the chef side. However, when it came to women, women were considered really good cooks. So Howard Johnson's that opened in the 1930s often hired women cooks and they kind of made sure, their architecture made sure that as um, customers came in, they could see women in the kitchen. Because what? Because if women are cooking, it's home cooked food. There's this whole idea, how do you get people to think they're eating home-cooked food? And there's a whole bunch of that happens in mm -hmm. the 1950s, even as there's a proliferation of processed foods. So my favorite example is that in the 1940s during World War II, you could make a cake and all you had to do was add water. And you could make a cake, it was fast, tasty, all of that. In the 1950s, cake mix manufacturers extracted the egg and the oil so that women had to add that to boxed cake and then they could say they made a homemade cake. When you make a cake from a mix, which do you want? A fresh egg cake or a cake made with dried eggs? Betty Crocker cake mixes are different. They call for your eggs added by you at home. It's the only national cake mix brand that lets you add the eggs. There's a reason why there are no dried egg whites, no dried egg yolks in Betty Crocker cake mixes. When you add the eggs, 
you're sure to get finer cakes most consistent. But that same psychology behind if you go to Howard Johnson's and there's a woman cooking, then you're really getting a home cooked meal. Wow. Yeah. You know, I have so much to ask you about education and community college, but I'm uh, this has grabbed me so much. I just want to ask one more question. I historically I think about that period and I know very little, so here goes. But I think about that period as like TV dinners and prepared mm-hmm. foods and that kind of thing. How did that coincide with what you were discovering in these cookbooks? Well, what I talk about in the cookbooks and in the popular culture is that there is a massive contradiction that happens in this time period that backs women into a corner. And that's one of the themes of one of my dissertation chapters. It was a theme of a section of it that was uh, published in a collection of articles. And that is, um, you know, it was homemade food from scratch. It was processed food from scratch. So you need to create all these home cooked meals, but we also have this boon in convenience food. So there were cookbooks out there that said, oh, your husband comes home with an unexpected guest. No problem. Take two cans of Campbell's (laughs) soup, two different kinds, put them in a pan, mix them up, and that can be your first course. Hmm. And then, you know, so it, it incorporates it. TV dinners, again, those are... They're processed food, but it's a complete dinner and it's a way for you to theoretically provide a nutritious meal for your family, but it's really quick. Swanson announces new three-course frozen dinners, the most complete frozen meal ever put in a single package. Complete from soup to dessert. It's the new Swanson three-course dinner. Now, at the same time, there were these competing messages that you needed to use processed food, but you also needed to cook from scratch. There was also this contradiction of you need to follow the directions word by word, step by step, but you need to be creative. So there were literally cookbooks that said, you know, with a flourish, do this. But then later in the cookbook, it would say, But if you don't follow the directions of this recipe, you have no one to blame but yourself if the recipe fails and your family is unhappy. It's Mm. on you. So Mm. I would say the 1950s was just all of these competing messages being thrown at women. You know, use frozen food, use canned food, but cook from scratch. Well, as you know, those a lot of those contradictory messages continue. So it'd be very interesting to see you do volume two in your copious spare time. I'm sure. Yeah. You know? <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. No problem. Yeah. Yeah, right, I totally right. have time for that. Yeah. Nine out of ten homemakers in recent tests said Betty Crocker cake mixes gave them bigger, taller cakes than the dried egg cake mixes they tested. Try Betty Crocker party cake mix for yellow, white, or spice cake. And try Betty Crocker Chocolate Devil's Food Cake Mix for rich, moist devil's food with genuine fresh egg goodness. Get Betty Crocker Cake Mixes today. Well, thank you for that. Sure. So, so interesting. Let's talk a little bit about your journey to uh, Pasadena City College. You've actually held many, many roles in the community college system in Mm -hmm. Oxnard and Santa Barbara. Uh, You were president of Los Angeles Valley College and now uh, president and superintendent of Pasadena City College. Talk to me a little bit about that journey and how it perhaps is culminating now in the work that you're doing in Pasadena. So I... You know, I had done work in other jobs working with adults going back to college. You know, my first real professional job was at Granite State College doing what I call cradle to grave advising. Is this in Vermont? This was in, I was living in Vermont. It was in New Hampshire. It's one of four state Uh institutions in New Hampshire, specifically dedicated to adults going back to college. So I already knew at a basic level that education is the greatest equalizer of the playing field. And I also knew that there are lots of things that get in the way. You know, in an ideal world, people graduate high school, they go to college, they get what they need and they go out and get a career. But for so many people, so many adults, that's just not the case. And so I worked at Granite State College and then again at Oglethorpe University and in Atlanta and at the Union Institute and University in LA, really working with adults saying, hey, how can we get you the degree you need to advance? But then I had a chance to work at Santa Barbara City College. One of my faculty members at the Union Institute took a job up at Santa Barbara and I applied 
and was first hired as the assistant dean and then a year later was the was the dean of career and technical education and i had long ago believed that community colleges had a vital role in equalizing the playing field because not everybody has a family that will send them off to college i will tell you that i grew up in a very challenging environment with a mother who had some emotional problems and you know there was never a question that i was going to college every my both my parents had gone to college their parents had gone to college but the day after i graduated high school my mom said i'm glad you're going to college but i'm not paying and we won't fill out the fafsa and we won't help you hmm. so that happens to a lot of people and you know right. the fall rolled around i went and registered at cal state northridge i paid 283 for an entire semester of classes yes that's how old i am and i made it through i worked my way through college and you know i could have given up i could have done all kinds of things and i didn't and i think that happens to a lot of people either they come from a family that doesn't have a college going culture or their first generation language barriers what have you or they come from a family where there's a college going culture and something goes awry we still need to be here so when i had the opportunity to go work at santa barbara city college it was truly transformative for me the irony is that then i was the career technical dean and i felt like i yeah that's a great job i am completely unqualified for this with a phd in history I will tell you as an aside that one of the luckiest parts of being that dean is that I oversaw the culinary school. <laughs> and um there were a few semesters there where I uh helped judge the finals in pastry at the end of the semester with Julia Child because she was living in Santa Barbara at the time and she would come to the gourmet dining room and she and I would judge pastries. And when I had done my dissertation research, I had read all of her papers at the Schlesinger Library. She was after yeah. my time period, but I still read her papers. And yeah, she's actually been an influence in my own career only because I love—I can't remember where I heard this—but I just love that you know, oh, the chicken is falling on the floor. That's okay. Just pick it <laughs> up and okay. put it back in the pot. Yes, yes. <laughs> When you flip anything, you really have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. No, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? But the only way you learn how to flip things is just to flip them. Such a great metaphor for the work we do, right? Yeah, absolutely. Sometimes the chicken falls on the floor and you just have to pick it up and put it back in the pot. Yeah, right? it's like right. my daughter when she had a pacifier. Yeah, it's fine. You know, <laughs> exactly. but yeah. so, you know, especially as the career technical dean, you know, I spent nine years overseeing 28 different programs in a system at a college which had a lot of programs but the fact is they were very transfer focused so i had to spend 9 years reminding everybody 50% of the mission of the california community colleges is economic and workforce development that's what career technical programs do and in 2002 i had an opportunity to go to what's known as the silmar women's leadership program and it is a program it's a weekend up at asilomar and other women leaders presidents chancellors come and they talk to you about what it is to be a community college president or leader and that was transformative for me because hmm. i already absolutely believed in what i was doing and you know i'd never really thought of being anything more than a dean you know and there's wait a minute i can do that this is amazing this is i can right. do that And so in that moment what I did was I started thinking about what experience don't I have. And I very purposefully got on statewide committees and boards, took on projects, wrote grants, wrote an NSF grant, did all kinds of things to prepare myself to ultimately then be the executive vice president of Oxnard College where I was the vice president of instruction, the vice president of student services and the accreditation liaison officer altogether. it was a phenomenal opportunity to really see what it takes to be a student in our system from beginning to end and it took me back to that time at granite state college when i did cradle to grave advising you know marketed them admitted them did their financial aid their career counseling taught some of the classes and 
got them out the door. But it obviously took you back to your own personal experience, that absolutely. moment when you were looking at a college career with absolutely no help and what you had to do on your own. Yes. And so, I mean, clearly that's a resonant part of your own mission, really, personal mission as a leader of a community college. Absolutely. And I see the struggle. And I want to be clear, I have white privilege. And, you know, financially, my family did not struggle. So I get it that I had that benefit. And there still are challenges. And so I think what we need to do as community college leaders is always keep in mind that you don't know what the challenges are. You know, if you see a student, don't judge a book by its cover because you have no idea where that student's coming from, what they've experienced, what they've had to overcome and what that internal motivation is. And sometimes we're here to say, you can do it. I wonder if you might, for our listeners, help us through. I'd like to do a bit of a primer on community colleges. I think it's such an amazing institution and what the community college system is achieving so significant to our conversation, our dialogue, our discourse about higher education right now in mm -hmm. this country. And I think it would be helpful to ask you to kind of help us understand it a bit. And my first specific question is just its financial structure, its economic model. What part is tuition and what percentage of the budget comes from the state? What are the various other revenue sources, role of philanthropy uh, through a foundation I think mm -hmm. that you have? If you could just help us understand the shape of the finances of it, it would be, I think, really welcome. Sure. That that's a, So the first thing is we don't technically have tuition. We have fees. Right, right. And um, what happens is we collect $46 a unit. We collect more if you're an out-of-state or you're an international student. And we keep those fees and the state through their budgeting process figures out what's known as our total computational revenue. And they send us that less the fees that they believe we have collected. Now that's on us to collect it because we know we're not gonna get state funding for it. Now, in addition to those general funds, we also get what are known as student equity and achievement dollars. And those are dollars where we provide services. So we go out and recruit, we do financial aid, we, we have you know, programs for our African-American students, our Asian Pacific Islander students, our formerly incarcerated, you know, our uh, educational opportunity programs and services or disabled students. So we fund money out of that pot as well as some designated money. The reason that comes in a separate amount of money is there's this very arcane law called the 50% law. And what it says is 50% of what I receive in my general funds has to go to instruction, which means I theoretically have to fund everything else at the college with the other 50%, and that is not possible. That's why we get those extra funds. And then we write grants. Uh, we write, you know, we have an NSF grant right now. We have three Title V Hispanic serving institution grants. And then there's all the federal relief dollars we have. So we get money from different places. Right. We also have a foundation. Our foundation has $31 million in it, and it funds a significant amount of scholarships to our students. And what about curricular development and how that works and who has control and where that's located and the extent to which you as an institution have some level of independence that way uh, that your faculty can generate those programs? I mean, I'm so fascinated with community college. Uh, the whole structure of it is it, there's so many lessons in it, I think. There, there are a lot of layers. I'm actually teaching a class at Cal State Northridge in the doctoral program called Law and Policy. And this is exactly what I teach. So every community college has a faculty, an academic senate, and it is up to the faculty and the academic senate to develop programs, to approve curriculum. And it is very much in the hands of the faculty. 
It doesn't mean that the administration doesn't play a role. We absolutely play a role because, for example, if faculty took uh, curriculum and basket weaving through the curriculum committee and came to me and said, look, we've approved a, a program in basket weaving. Um, I would say that's great, but we're not going to offer it because that doesn't help students. But there are so many great ideas that faculty are able to do. You know, that's why we have an NSF program in nanotechnology. Passion of the faculty. We're about to implement a program in laser technology. Passion of faculty. So that's one piece of curriculum. And can you talk a little bit about how the development of curriculum and how the faculty work on it relative to mission, meaning to what extent are the goals of the institution? To what extent is it career and professional development? To what is it a skill-based education? To what extent does it prepare students to enter a four-year institution? How does that all get negotiated? Yes, <laughs> it's all of that, actually. So we'll start with career technical. So with career and technical programs, what drives the curriculum there is industry. What does a student need to get licensed to go into a particular career? Oftentimes there's a licensure exam. So our nursing programs, our EMT programs, dental hygiene, dental tech, whatever, you know, radiography. We have to train students so that when they leave us, they pass the licensing exam and we're held accountable to that. We're held accountable to it with our accreditation and with our individual program accreditations. But then you have other areas like you have automotive, you have computer technology, you have these kinds of things where there may or may not be a licensing exam. But what we need to do is make sure that when our students go out on the job market, employers say, yeah, that student came from Pasadena City College and they know how to do X. So part of the way we do that is we have annual advisory committee meetings with business and industry folks there. We, our faculty talk about, here's the curriculum. This is what we're doing. Is there anything changing we need to know about? You know, like in our graphic arts or in our film programs, is the industry changing to a different editing standard or a different program? That's how we get that information. So that's there. On the liberal arts or the general education side, a lot of what drives that is transfer. So we look to and work in partnership with the Cal States and the UCs uh, first on our general education patterns because our students take either the general education pattern for CSU or UC, or some students take both so they can cover all bases. But then when it comes to actually transferring, the majors for CSU are what are known as our associate degrees for transfer. So in partnership with the Cal States, thanks to legislation, we have students who complete these classes, this general education pattern, and they are then automatically accepted into the CSU and the deal is they don't have to retake anything because it used to be before these associate degrees for transfer were around, a student would do a transfer pattern and then they would get to a Cal State or a UC and they'd say, oh yeah, you have to retake that again. We don't agree with that. Thanks to legislation, that's not the case anymore. So we work with them on those kinds of transfer degrees. We also have local degrees where we might have some extra, like if you want a ceramics degree, but it doesn't transfer to a CSU in this exact way, it doesn't mean you can't do it. It's just, you know, it's the faculty looking at what somebody might want to do and shaping the curriculum around that. Well, and I have to say, I mean, as a partner of your institution, right? Yes. Art Center College of Design. I mean, the rich history and relationship between our two institutions mm -hmm. and the number of brilliant students that have come from Pasadena City College to Art Center and faculty, and it's been wonderful. And it's not, I know, along the same kind of formula as you have with the UC system or the CSU system, but it's been an amazing connection of seeing all of that work over the years. Yeah. And, and I think it's important to say that, you know, obviously we want students to transfer to the CSU and the UC because those are our educational partners, but there is a huge role for institutions like yours. You know, there are lots of reasons a student would choose to go to your institution rather than the others. And, and what I think our job is at, as a community college is to provide the information on everything. 
because there's a reason there are over 3,000 colleges in this country. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Because there's a different fit. Right. And I'm here to say that, and please hear this with deep, deep gratitude. I mean, PCC has been uh, all part of the lifeblood of Arts Center College of Design for many, many years. That's awesome. And uh, yeah, it's been- That makes me happy. (laughs) It's been fantastic. Yeah. 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 So again, continuing on in my fascination, when you were talking about the faculty and their work, you were alluding to certain, or I heard certain echoes of what we would call shared governance Mm -hmm. in the academy. And that's something that interests me a lot for many, many reasons. I've tried various different experiments at Art Center with it. It's been enormously helpful to, I think, the progress of our institution, though it's still a work in progress. I mean, it's been mixed results. It's It's a very messy and very difficult experience. And I'm interested in your experience with it and maybe, again, to learn from uh, the community college system or maybe PCC particularly about how shared governance operates there. So I think shared governance, um, the way I like to look at it is I'm a firm believer that out of the chaos always comes clarity. And one of the nice things about shared governance, I mean, I have colleagues out there who say, oh, I wish I didn't have to deal with the academic senate or, oh, I wish I didn't have to do with the, deal with the faculty unions. The fact is that it's, it's a roadmap. It's very clear what our roles are. And what we do is we come to the table and we talk about how do we get from point A to point B? What's your input on it? What's my input on it? And how do we go forward? And you know, I'm a big fan of you dance with the one that brung you. So if you don't believe in shared governance, you can't work at a California community college because you have to be willing to say, okay, I don't agree with that. So how are we going to get to a point where I will agree to the point where I'll put something forward to the board, for example? I think it's my job to be very clear about where I stand because ultimately I recommend everything to the board. So for example, if there's a program, you know, using the basket weaving example, like I will tell faculty if there is any hint that they're going down a path that I can't support, I'm going to tell them at the beginning of it. I'm going to say, wow, you know, that's an interesting idea. I'm not sure the board's going to go for that. So Right. Though I was actually intrigued by the basket weaving example because actually the way you told the narrative, which is something familiar, was that the faculty senate had decided they wanted to offer basket weaving. And you said, very nice, but I'm not going to. Right. Essentially, I'm going to veto that decision. And this is where shared governments become so tricky to me. What is the locus of decision making versus conversation? Okay, so the locus of decision making is that faculty own the curriculum in terms of developing it, but I own the schedule. So let's come to a point where we can agree what it should look like so that, you know, like, how do we get to yes? But I want to be really clear. I also can't go to that conversation without evidence. I can't go and just say, because I said so. And I think that that's where a lot of presidents get tripped up, is that they're not willing to engage in the dialogue. But the work is in the conversation you have with the Mm -hmm. community, right? Yes. And at the end of the day, shared governance has to be about that conversation. It is. So really, by the time you get to a decision, a recommendation to you or a recommendation to the board, it's been hashed out, hopefully, even if there's disagreement. Mm Mm-hmm. Exactly. Right. And there's some kind of consensus that's been built. Mm-hmm. And, and what I was trying to avoid was simply the kind of flatness of there's a decision in this part of the institution by this senator, by this group, and then the executive has privilege to veto or accept it. And that just, again, seemed to be dehumanizing. It has to right. be the conversation. And that's the way these institutions, I think, find their energy and how we all learn from each other as well. Yes. I have a big question for you, and you can, again, specify or ground it in any way you see helpful, and that is with respect to DEI work at PCC, um, Mm -hmm. uh, racial justice issues, and what the conversation on campus is. And again, it's a huge question, I realize, but just to get a sense from you of what you're wrestling with at this particular juncture and where you see some of this going. 
Um, it's a huge conversation on yeah. this campus. So I'll start with one of my goals or visions for the college, which I've been very clear about since the beginning, was that our chancellor's office came up with these vision for success goals. And one of them is to get rid of all equity achievement gaps by 2027. And I have completely adopted that. I believe it is possible to get rid of equity achievement gaps. I don't like that terminology, but for the shorthand, you know, that every student who starts at our college will be successful by 2027. So that's been my goal. The DEI work has always been here in terms of being equity minded. In fact, I've never seen a community college in California so grounded in doing equity work. Like I came to a college that was already on its way before the pandemic happened, I was actually um, about to advertise for chief diversity, equity, and inclusion officer, because I really believe that as an institution, we did a really great way, great, great job in pockets of the college, but it wasn't a college-wide vision. And so I was about to advertise for it. Pandemic happened, pulled back, you know, we did what all of us did. And then George Floyd happened. And there was a lot of pain expressed. Uh, we had what was called a listening tour and the students and the faculty and staff who talked about what George Floyd meant and how they felt they'd been treated on campus. You know, a lot of that stuff was really, it came to the surface. It was there, but it really became raw. So I took some, some in immediate steps, you know, got that chief diversity, equity and inclusion officer um, advertised. I also looked at our general orders for our campus police and immediately said, you will not use the chokehold. That is, and I want you to go and review that entire manual, all 600 pages, and we need to, it to become an anti-racist document. Because there were examples that came out that were, you know, I was completely blind to as, as open-minded as I feel like I am. I don't see everything. So for example, last February, we had two events going on um, simultaneously, a Chinese New Year celebration on one part of the campus and a Black History event happening on another part of the campus. There were no campus police at the Chinese celebration. There were four campus police at the Black History celebration. Now, what does that tell you? That's not good. We can do better. Right. So we started to work on that did work with the managers, found, you know, had five books, including Kendi's, you know, how to be anti-racist and had the managers do reading circles. So we've done a lot of that kind of work. Our board, there's a statewide push of trustees to do DEI work. Four out of seven of our board members, plus the student trustee are all involved in that work. We implemented blind screening for our administrative hiring, meaning you know, we use the uh, USC uh, Center on Racial Equity to review our job descriptions, to make sure our job description and our advertisements were free of bias. So basically what we've been trying to do is, is kind of attack it from all sides. It's still hard. You know, there's still a lot of hard conversations that have to happen. We're trying to have them and it's hard. Right. Well, we need to take on that pain, I think, yes, um, if we're ever going to find our way through it. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I want to return to sort of lessons of the pandemic in a moment. But before I do that, I just want to digress for a second, because I stumbled on this story that I want to ask you to tell, because I'm so curious about it, that when you were at LA Valley College, you went through a ransomware attack. Is that right? <laughs> I did. Yes, I did. Kind of the short story is the way that we figured that we knew that something was happening was that every day, one of the first things I do is I send an email to every person who has a birthday and I personally wish them a happy birthday. Oh, and, <laughs> that's that's and, wonderful. And I was trying. So it was actually my uh, IT director's birthday and I couldn't get into the email. So I texted her. I said, you know, I'm having a hard time with the email. Can you check into it? So she did. And she gets back to me. She's like, hmm, something's not right. So basically what, what had happened, what they figured out was that there had been a brute force attack on our bookstore server. And after about 10,000 tries, 
they got in. And because we had all of our servers set up parallel, they um, started to, that was on December 7th. By December 25th, they had successfully integrated themselves into 71 out of 124 servers. Starting on Christmas Day, they started to lock them all down. So on December 30th, basically what happened was the IT director got the ran- the ransom note. She tried to open a file and the ransom note came up and it said, you have seven days to pay us $28,000 in Bitcoin or we're going to destroy all your files. Now, at this point, we have no idea when they think seven days begins. So we start having crisis meetings. And because there's a district, I, we had to have, you know, the chancellor, our legal counsel, all of that. So and we had uh, law enforcement and they're like, well, you have to make a choice. And I said, well, I think we need to pay them. Oh, I don't know. Um, and I got a lot of pushback. And they said, why do you, why are you so desperate to pay them? I said, well, one law enforcement person said that it's our only chance. And 95% of the time, you know, the model works. They get paid. We get our information back. I said, but the other thing is we're dead in the water. They shut down every, you know, we've been telling faculty forever here, put your stuff online. Guess what? They locked down all those servers. So everything was gone. Admissions gone. Financial aid gone. Our website dead in the water. We were gone. Winter was about wow. to start, you know? Wow. I said, so if we don't try to do this, then what am I going to tell the faculty and staff that I didn't do everything in my power to get their stuff back? You know, this is crazy. And the general counsel said, well, you know, the board can't vote on this. So if you do this, this is on you personally. I said, well, last time I checked, I have signing authority for up to $75,000. This is $28,000 I'm signing. Now, one thing that we did do is we confirmed that they never took any information, which is really key because if if any information had left the system, then we would have had to do credit monitoring for about 40,000 people for five years. So it was significant that they didn't take anything. I see. But it was um, surreal. It sounds it. And, um, you know, congratulations on navigating (laughs) your way out of it. (laughs) Well, just to find our way to wrap up a little bit, I wanted to ask you about, you know, your experience through this pandemic, what you've learned and what I'm particularly interested in and what I'm really trying to wrestle with at Art Center with the community now is for us what a post-pandemic Art Center might look like, uh, what we've learned and how we can integrate those lessons into a sense of our future. And I'm curious to know how that's relevant for you and for PCC. Well, I think the first thing is that it's easier to send people away than it is to get them to come back. So that's, you know, one of the challenges. I think this whole pandemic, it has been challenging to stay focused on students when you're dealing with so many of these little details. I think it has shown how desperately we need to move into the next century in terms of making sure that all of our processes are electronic and not paper-based, um, which has caused issues. I think it's um, it's just the fragility, you know, like we always knew, we've always known that our students have basic needs. You know, a lot of our students are food insecure, you know, in a normal time, we we receive and distribute 3,000 pounds of food a week through our um, pantry and just how bad it can get. And so I think in many ways, what we take away from this is almost a rededication to how we meet those basic needs for students and how we figure out how do you create community both online and in person? Because this may happen again in five years. God, I hope not, but it may happen again in five years. So we need to be better prepared. I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but- Well, but I mean, if you take that nexus of physical facilities and technology and start applying it to various different functions of the institution, it becomes a very interesting Mm -hmm. reset of how we do things through what mechanisms, what the resources need to be technologically facility-wise, et cetera. And um, that just generates some very, very interesting and important questions about the future, I think. Yeah. There's no page in the leadership playbook for this. Right, right. And Indeed. we're yeah. just trying. I think the best thing we can do is 
And this is where my uh, my catchphrase this entire year has been Semper Gumby, always flexible. <laughs> I started this pandemic by saying to everybody on March 12th, I think it was, we have to be, everything is fluid. The information we have today is different than what we knew yesterday is different than what we know tomorrow. Um, you know, perfection is the enemy of the good. And as a college, we're going to be Semper Gumby. We're going to be always flexible. And I think, because people live in the, oh my gosh, I don't want to do the wrong thing. I don't want to do the wrong thing either. We try, you know, as presidents, we try to do the right thing. Sometimes we're right, sometimes we're wrong. And I think the best thing we can do is make the best decision at the time, be willing to be Semper Gumby and be willing to say, yeah, I made a mistake or, hey, I thought this was a good thing to do. It didn't work out. Let's try something new. Because in the end, the only thing that matters are the students. Hmm. Are they being served? Well, that's a great transition to a, a final question I want to ask. And, um, you know, just in throughout this conversation and uh, the reading I was able to do um, and trying to learn about you too, what struck me among many, many impressive qualities was this journey you took yourself personally through the community college system, but also how you think about the work that you do as fundamentally tied to, in a way that's resonant with your own personal experience in a way, mm -hmm. um, which is beautifully done so that you can bring to your work a sensitivity and empathy, a way of knowing something almost in your body about the experience that these students have that you just so beautifully directed your attention to. And so I'd like to gather that up and ask you this question about change that I like to ask a lot of the guests of this podcast. It is called Change Lab, and we do <laughs> a lot at Art Center, yeah. <laughs> and to ask you about how you think about the change you create in the world, how you influence change, what it means to you, and how it informs the work you do and the person that you are and continue to grow to be. I feel like every position I've taken in the community colleges, I've started with the idea of whenever it's time to go, I want to leave this place a better place. I want to put systems in place. I want to make sure that the institution moves forward. I often talk about it as president-proofing the college because it's always keeping in mind that I'm not the college. I'm the leader of the college. You know, Never confuse who you are with what you do. But there are things that I feel really proud of in my career, and it's because I was able to make an important change. An example, when I got to Santa Barbara, the executive vice president had a particular perspective about a couple of really talented people. And he was just so wedded to that perception of those people that they were being wasted. They were not being able to advance. And by the time I left, I had been successful in changing that perception. I have been successful in turning the culinary program around. I have been like those kinds of things because there was just so much potential. So I feel like the change that I try to do is I try to make things a better place. And sometimes it means being willing to take the hit. And usually the vindication hotline rings and it all works out. Hmm. But I think the other piece of it is that if the change I want to see is going in the wrong direction, I have to be mature enough to say, you know what, folks, we're not going to do that. And I think it's so easy to become the center of the change you want to make. That's where I think people go awry. Is It's not about me. I imagine, however, that echoing your own perception of the contradiction that you perceived in those cookbooks and at that moment in history with the tension between the TV dinner and the, <laughs> the prescriptive nature of those cookbooks, that there's something to naming contradiction. Yes, definitely. Right? There's something yes. to putting it out there and using your insight and your skill to be able to identify something that at least gives us a chance to start wrestling with it. And I get the sense that that is core to who you are and how Absolutely. you move forward is to name that and help a community deal with it. 
mm-hmm. because you've been able to bring it to the surface that way. Yeah. And I think um, part of that comes from my historian training. You know, yeah, I feel beautiful. I feel like yeah. that's kind of where I've been as a teacher. It's been where I've been as a professional. And, you know, I what you see is what you get. Like, I have no hidden agenda. And anybody will tell you I speak my mind. <laughs> anybody will tell you I would speak my mind. So keep going, keep going. And you've got a new, very enthusiastic fan in me. And uh, I, I just uh, really want to thank you very much for doing this. I only regret that we haven't connected earlier. <laughs> I know. Post-pandemic, there's something to hope exactly, for. Exactly, indeed. Thank you for thinking of me. Thank you. I appreciate it. It's, this is awesome. I want to thank you for joining us on this season's multifaceted journey through the ecosystem of post-secondary education. It's been incredibly edifying to discover the multitude of ingenious responses to the crossroads at which we find ourselves at this unique moment in time. For our next season, which launches this coming September, we'll embark on a deeply personal exploration of change from the inside out. I've spent the past several years working on a book entitled Make to Know, expected to be published this fall, about how the creative process can be a catalyst for discovery. Our Change Lab lineup will feature an array of prominent creatives exploring the ways in which ideas announce themselves through the very act of making. I'm incredibly excited to share these insights with you. This research has become my driving passion, along with this podcast, of course. And here's another idea. I'd love to encourage you to share your own stories of creative discovery. If you're interested, think about the moments of inspiration or revelation that have struck once you started writing, sculpting, painting, designing, dancing, cooking, or whatever you do to express your creativity, and then tell us about it. Your experiences would contribute to this research and maybe even a future episode of Change Lab. If you're open to joining this conversation, record your thoughts on your phone and email the file to changelab at artcenter.edu, along with your name and some contact information. From there, we'll get in touch with you about how we might interact with your story. I can't wait to share this work with you in the fall. In the meantime, please don't forget to review and rate Change Lab wherever you subscribe to help ensure it's discoverable to as many creative souls as possible. Change Lab is produced out of Art Center College of Design. I'd like to thank our small but mighty production staff, producer Christine Spines, co-producer Luis Silva, editor Emily Van Bergen, and post-production supervisor and production consultant Christopher Olin. 